0: Welcome back, it's time for Customers Who Click, the e-commerce podcast for brands looking for their next growth opportunities. If you're interested in improving your conversion rates, average order values, and customer lifetime value, head over to CustomersWhoClick.com where you can find all our previous episodes and get in touch if you'd like to learn more. Fantastic episode lineup for you today as I know this is a problem a lot of brands struggle with, especially in the early days. So our big focus of this episode is gonna be on how to choose your next channel and how to know when the right time is to expand. A lot of brands do this way too early, you know, they dip their toes into a new channel, get burned and conclude that it doesn't work. But this couldn't be further from the truth. My guest today is John Chan, he's CEO at 2X Growth Agency. Let's get him on now. Hi, John. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just give us a bit of an introduction to yourself, a bit of your backgrounds, and how where you are? Absolutely. And thanks for having me. So
1: the punchline is I'm a generalist. I started my career in, when I was 19 and I dropped out of school to become a freelance web designer. And I learned a bit of coding in high school, and that kind of carried the first part of my career where I started off designing websites, but and it got me to start thinking about who are the people on the other side. And that kind of introduced me to the concept of usability and understanding user experiences. But at some point back then, I used to work at a, at a local university, UBC, University of British Columbia. And it got to the point where I got frustrated with, oh, I developed all these great experiences, but I did not know how to measure them. So I started transitioning to private companies and I started doing CRO as a result of tying analytics to the designs. So that probably ran maybe like five or six years before I transitioned to writing software. One of my feathered my caps was I joined a company called Basecamp. After that, they were a remote company at the time. And it introduced me to applying those set of skills into a sort of for-profit software environment. And that was kind of my foray into software where I eventually learned how to develop my coding skills to become Basically, like a software engineer, and so that next phase led to another five years or so of running a tech company, where we eventually ran its course. And the lesson learned from the tech company was, oh, I didn't understand distribution. We had great product, we had people that loved the product, but we couldn't crack the user acquisition funnels that we needed. Which is kind of like how we eventually went to running the agency today. So today we run an agency two x. We have about about six million dollars in ad spend under management. And, you know, and then the top line figures was we did about $30 million in attribute revenues over up to date. And our core expertise and functions are in paid social, paid search, landing pages, and email and retention. So the whole gambit. And where we're trying to get to is we're trying to become a private equity firm where we acquire these businesses to grow and own in-house. So that's where we've been and that's where we're headed to.
0: Yeah. So I guess becoming like an aggregate, 100%. So- Put, putting on a, a load of brands underneath one. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like group portfolio, I suppose. A hundred percent. So, so how do you get customers clicking? Sure. So the
1: punchline is that people are clicking all the time, right? Every day, people, millions of people are clicking every single day. And so a lot of the things that I think about is how do I show up at the right place at the right time? And the context of where they're at is what the experience is changes how I get people to click. And so the four touch points that we we manage are before they show up to the website. And again, that's for us, it's paid search or paid social. We have the landing page where they get to and figure out ways to click there. And then the final touch points are email, SMS, if they left the site, and we didn't get to come back. And so in paid search environments, we get people to click by thinking about, by recognizing that they're presented with a sea of options that they can choose from. So if you're on Google search, or if you're in Bing search, or an Amazon search, you're presented with a bunch of different options. And so drawing the click is about being the most promising uh, click or the most attractive click among, amongst the set of environments. And so that's the consideration there. And paid social, the consideration is about boredom because when people are in their downtime, they scroll on their feeds. And so the way to draw the click is about being entertaining, being interesting, and raising curiosity. It's about that. On the landing page front, It's about matching intents that people were promised earlier. And so making sure that once they showed up, they're reassured that they're in the right destination and making sure that the persuaded could click through. And that happens only if people already identified that, yep, this is something that I'm interested in. This is what I was promised. And then the last part, emails is really about, or even SMS is about timing. Again, if they've left, they've been distracted. It's about creating a sense of urgency or creating a sense of relevance that within your inbox of 20 different emails, this is the one that you want to click on right now
0: Yeah yeah, it's, it's interesting. someone mentioned this to me the other day, which I hadn't exactly thought of like this. you're not right you're not just competing for clicks from your competitors. you are competing for a click from literally anything that appears in their feed right because there's only a certain amount of time they're going to spend on Facebook or Instagram. Anyone who gets that click is going to take up a reasonably decent portion of that time probably. I'd always viewed it as, you know, it's not just your competitors you have to worry about. There are alternatives, right? So I was, I mean, that's still kind of a competitor, but we're talking about, I don't know, what's a competitor to going to the gym? It's Netflix. Oh, sorry, not a competitor, and an alternative. Your gym is Netflix, because that's how people spend their time. But in terms of clicks and advertising, literally anything out there, anyone who's spending money trying to get in front of people is a competitor to you. So you've got the, like I said, the most entertaining, most eye-catching at the time, mind you, right? Again, it's about being
1: not because you're not selecting from a set of options. You're presented with one thing at a time, a sequence of things. And so you might not be the most interesting ad or the most interesting piece of content, but if you showed up at the right place at the right time, right? And it was enough for them to be like, oh, interesting. Let me dig into that. That's the switch that you had to get people to come across. And that's a 100% what it comes down to. And that's why different channels match different product sets. Because if your price points, for example, are not competitive in a search environment, you're not going to draw the click or you're going to have a harder time drawing the click. Whereas on paid social, people are not choosing you over a set of competing options. And therefore, you you see brands being able to get away with offering more higher priced items because they haven't gone through the research process. And that's why DTC brands tend to advertise on paid social because they're focused on that one thing at a time. And not a range of options, especially if the product category is not clear. Like, what do I search for this thing? And they're not clear what to do that. How to do that? That's that's a good environment for paid social ads.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you've got maybe a new product or just something where you it doesn't really fall into a normal search, search thing, or, you know, there's a brand called Boot Buddy, which I think is over in the US as well, but they went on Dragon's Den or our, uh, yeah, our Dragon's Den. I think it's Shark Tank over there, isn't it? Essentially, it's a, a brush, a tool to clean your boots. Could be football boots, walking boots, whatever. Then they released the Sizzle Buddy, which is one for barbecues, and a poor Buddy, one for tops. <laughs> I feel like you might look for one to clean your boots. Maybe. I don't know. But like personally, I've never searched for an actual product to clean my shoes to clean my grill, to clean my dog's paws, because I've got solutions for it. That's
1: interesting because that's the kind of thing that paid social as an environment creates. I learned this concept from a fellow agency owner called Taylor Holiday, and and he talks about paid social, and he absolutely nails this, which was he talks about paid social environments as demand generation. So what you just talked about was that you weren't thinking about this before. And then that idea of that visual storytelling you know, was put into your head it was like oh i didn't even realize i had that want or need right and in, in this case it's about cleaning boots right but it's like i never even thought about that like as in, in my downtime so that idea was seated in your head and so now if there wasn't this interest now there's a demand for this thing and so on paid search having the corresponding ad units or organic sort of placement it's about demand capture and so he thinks about and talks a lot about this how you use paid social for demand generation and then you primarily use paid search for demand capture. And there's some lines that are blurred in between, but you know, generally speaking, that's the two primary functions between these two different uh, platforms or types of platforms. And so, but that's exactly it. You weren't thinking about it, but now that you've seen it, oh, shoot, now that I'm thinking about this, I wonder what that's like. And then you can you look there.
0: And it, it might take you a little while to purchase. You might need to, hit, to be hit with a few ads, but that's how advertising works, right? It's not you see one ad you buy something which is seems to be how a lot of brands think it's supposed to happen a lot of founders think it's supposed to happen they're like why you know why don't facebook ads perform as well as PVC? it's well well cuz the it's a completely different intent isn't it yeah it's a different stage of the purchase cycles. but
1: the caveat to what you just said is that it changes depending on the purchase size and orders right and so if it's under a certain dollar amount People do shop impulsively if it's like under twenty bucks or thirty bucks or fifty bucks. People are willing to spend right then and there. But it also explains why the larger the order, right? You know, paid social still works. You know, under the, the hundred dollar stages. But we've we, one of the brands we worked with sells a thousand dollar plus, you know, item, a household item, a mattress topper specifically. And so, when, and for them, they had a really like hard time getting data captured. It didn't mean that the platform doesn't work because they were able to get sales from it, but it was hard to attribute that type of thing. And I've seen this with other large items, like $2,000, what have you. It's a very hard environment for that, but not because it doesn't work. It's because it's hard to measure. People that are shopping, people that need it, they just need, they need an elongated type of like way of considering the purchase, but they still do shop based on introduce, ideas introduced. It just takes longer.
0: Yeah. Also, I mean... You- I know that certain purchases I won't make on my phone, which is the main place that I would see adverts on paid social, because I very rarely go on there on my desktop. It's yeah, it's normally my phone. But if something is fifteen hundred quid, I'm very unlikely to buy that on my phone. Hardly because I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a, like a bias because I'm in this space, but I guess part of me assumes that I'm I might be missing some information looking at the page on my mobile, whereas I'm more confident that all that information is going to be displayed on desktop. doesn't really make sense because you wouldn't hide sales information, but it likely
1: reflects the way that you purchase specifically, right? I mean, if you look at mobile experiences though, right? Like we're probably talking about, I forgot the specific stats, right? But we're talking about like maybe 70 or 80% of web experiences are mobile. And so mobile shopping is actually highly prevalent. And if you look at conversion rates, generally speaking, you'll probably see like a three to one difference between mobile versus desktop, but it's still, but it makes up for it. And so mobile purchasing experiences is huge. And so, and people do transact on it, but the difference between the different devices of having a desktop in front of you or a tablet versus having a restricted real estate is that. You have to be more succinct and you have to be able to communicate more. You have to do more with less, right? But if you can walk through the mental process of removing all the objections that people have, removing all the considerations that people have, giving them enough insurance that whatever they're purchasing is what the purchase is the right idea, that's the thing that they're promised, they're happy to shop online. They're happy to shop on their phones, rather. And so it still happens, but it's about removing restrictions and barriers to progress. And a lot of times, it really comes down to making sure people have the right information, but you just got to do it in a very succinct way. And that's why, you know, you're working with a limited environment, right? So.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you do break down the data, you, you know, there are segments of mobile traffic that converts really well because they are, they're ready to buy, right? You know, what tends to happen is the conversion rate, well, from what I've seen, the conversion rate is lower on mobile because more of that traffic is paid social. And that's lower intent traffic. So yes, it's going to convert worse. It's not necessarily that mobile is a worse experience. It's not because people don't like shopping on mobile. It's just that, you know, it's the same as, you know, when a brand will say to me, you know, our conversion rates dropped over the last month, you know, what's going on for, or longer. And I'll look at their data and it's, they've been driving huge amounts of traffic to a blog or it's TikTok traffic or something. And you're like, well, yeah, because... This traffic's unlikely. It's not unlikely to buy. Hang on. Yeah, that's right. It's not unlikely to buy. They just don't want to buy now because it's the first time they've ever heard of your brand or they were going to a blog, which is about information. Right? So it's, yeah, context managers, you have to break it down. What they wanted to ask them was I guess what, I guess, changes the subject slightly. What makes an appealing brand? In terms of like, you know, you, you mentioned, so yeah, you wanted to build up like a portfolio of brands. What is it you look like? What do you think the key metrics are for a brand that they should be looking at? Because just that one thing to that, I was on this chat the other day, we were talking about brands who track KPIs. In fact, we talked about on the podcast as well. I've been in this situation where I was in-house and I was asked to fill out an Excel spreadsheet with like 50 daily KPIs, you know, traffic, traffic per source, bounce rate, time on site, all these different metrics. But at the end of the day, what are the the metrics that actually matter? So
1: I'm going to broaden metrics with data because when you're looking at uh, data, there's things that you can measure, just quantifiable ones, but there's also qualitative one first. So before I even look at quantitative things, I actually think of the qualitative side first, which is I actually think about product categories, meaning... A lot part of what metrics to look at depends on what product category you're in, right? And so there are certain businesses that are much easier to run and their the attributes that are associated with different product categories. So what do I mean by that? It's like cosmetics? Cosmetics is a very common thing that you see on social, but it's because the weight to value, like dollar value, very high and so from a shipping like perspective it's a lot cheaper to do and so you get you generally get much better margins from it, and that's why it's so popular and that's why it's also very profitable but the other aspect of it is that it's a replenishable product where when you're done using it and you like the product you have to get other ones right and so so generally speaking it's product categories that have a range of products that you can use as a hero product and then you have a lot of things to upsell that are adjacent to it those tend to do very well and those are very things that I like. I also like categories that are easy to show. And again, if you have a visual format that you could see that demonstrates a product on a social on a paid social environment, that's a very good product to have. Some products are harder to do, right? So if you think about apparel, I, you know, I would hesitate and people built strong apparel brands, but I would hesitate because if you were to get into apparel beyond showing, oh, I had the better premium fabric or, you know, whatever designs, what have you, it's hard to differentiate and build a strong sort of like angle to it.
0: Well, just, on on that note, apart from Gymshark, obviously, but they had a quite a specific niche. The only brand that I can think of recently that is really nailing it is True Classics. They're the t-shirt brands. They sell plain t-shirts. They're now a 300 million a year brand, I think, because they've, they've really nailed their content yeah. 100%. But if you knew us about True Classics, they actually, what's interesting, because it's fun to
1: look at their ads and dissect it, right? But because, if you think about the context of how they present it, they're selling to women. They're selling to the women and said, hey, if you want your guy to look like this, or if you want your guy to like, you know, don't want to be like, it, it's hard. So a lot of the angling and messaging is very clever. And so that, that's an angle too. But a lot of it comes down to like, again, product categories as like the first touch point is what I think about because what are the opportunities within that? And then I get into like whatever k- metrics and KPIs because you want, the most important one is actually having strong gross margins, right? Because if you look at the top line revenue, you see a lot of brands that are doing, for example, I, I looked at a brand the other day where it was like $70,000 in top line sales per month, which is pretty decent. It's, it's demonstrated that it's, you know, you have product market fit, but they couldn't spend much money on ads because the way they were operating, just, you know, there was no money left for it. And so it's like, how does that happen, right? But it's a function of a lot of different things, right? Of just not having they have decent margins, but just having a tough sort of time scaling that business when your opex is just not there. So gross margins is usually the first indicator of the type of business that you're running into, and you can conversion rates you can look at. They're generally standard, but it's also dependent again on the price point. You have you know five hundred dollar plus, you're going to see a lot lower in conversion rates. You see maybe like you know zero point five or you know, as opposed to like a 1% standard. But those are like sort of like standards. The best one I've seen though is actually 5%. I saw a brand recently that was like doing 5% conversions actually.
0: And, you know, again, traffic matters
1: too because it was targeting a lot of existing traffic too. Yeah.
0: I think so with conversion rate. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's, as a marketer, it's, it's one of the metrics that I would track. But the thing about conversion rate is it's so impacted by the traffic that you drive to your website. So, you know, I think it's good to track, but essentially what you're looking at is, do you see a spike or a dip in your conversion rate? That's when you go and explore what happened that day, especially if you don't think you've done anything. But apart from that, it's kind of a- Not
1: a useful, no, it's, it's, not a, it's not a helpful metric because you don't make decisions right. based on that, right? And so a more- Yeah, i mean, uh, really is actually approximated to by channel. So if you've taken a conversion rate and you break it down by channel, that teaches a little bit more. But that's still not what you actually measure because you can have high conversion rate or low conversion rate. It actually doesn't matter because it's actually the inverse of that. If you have a very low conversion rate,
0: but your unit economics in your ad campaigns work out, who cares? So, you know, if I was running a cosmetics brand, for example, my conversion rate was under a percent. I, you know, I'd I would be concerned about that because I think for a cosmetic brand, if you're let's say your a O V is about hundred dollars, I would be a bit concerned about that. But what I'd be more concerned about, and this applies to any brand really, if my conversion rate is around about one percent all year round, and then suddenly it drops down to zero point two five, that's the bit that's going to make me go, "What happened? What's happened here? Do we do we need to panic, or is this like a little, you know, a, a little one off?" Sure, I actually use that data a
1: little bit differently. So what I think about is, let's say I have a paid social ad, right? The paid social ads I currently look at now is I look at our hook rates. So how much of the impressions that we're generating for uh, sort of we're advertising for versus how many people stop for the first three seconds. That shows me the effectiveness of the hook of my ad crate of the first three seconds. Then I watch the hold rate and whether if people stuck around to watch the rest of the ad and that shows me sort of the next thing. And then conversion rate is actually, sorry, the next one is actually outbound clicks. How many people did I watch a video, stop to watch a video, watched through a good portion of the video, and then clicked on it to get to the other side. But then conversion rate is the function of the landing page. Then I look at the effectiveness of that. And so if I see banger numbers and metrics in the first three, but terrible metrics on the fourth one, it helps me diagnose that, well, that's where I need to make changes to or improvements to, or that there's a mismatch before. And so conversion rates are used in that way, not as a way of diagnosing sort of overall performance. Because again, it goes back to if I have all my things lined up. I don't care if I have a low conversion rate in a sense, quote unquote, don't care. If the CPAs that if I have a $100 product and the target row as I need to hit is, let's call it like two, right? Then if I have money left over for that profits in my ad campaign, then I'll leave that low conversion rate and I'll just keep driving spending on the top funnel. And then I'll kind of address that kind of like things down funnel. Because again, you know, people might. Deliberate and take time to come back. Right? Maybe they need to like look at it, look at the conversion rate. So, so look at the page, and they don't convert then and there because they need to come back on a different channel. So again, it's somewhat meaningless, but it's used to diagnose a very specific thing, which is how are performing, and you have leading indicators that lead you wasn't a problem over here, wasn't a problem over here, wasn't a problem over here, but it might be a problem over here. But taking it a step back. Does it actually mean something?
0: Yeah. Well, the, the way we approach CR is by breaking it down, right? You know, you just saying how do we improve our conversion rate it's such a massive piece of work it's like where do you start with that right so the answer is you break it down and you say well you know I'm concerned with once traffic lands the website so I'd be looking at how many sessions are viewing a product how many view- of those add to cart how many of those go to checkout how many of those there, and looking at where the drop off is in that funnel and say well that's our target area you know I can benchmark them a little bit and say well alright Check out completion rates a bit low, so maybe we need to fix that a bit. But normally, I would see that add to cart rate is low, and that's where we're, we we want to target because basically you're not selling the product. Yep. Which is why, from an audit perspective,
1: though, right? I rarely find myself looking at benchmark metrics of one brand and then going to the next brand and say, "Oh, based on this metrics over here, this seems a little bit low." But largely because of the like you touched on earlier, the traffic sources and the traffic mix is different. And so if the context matches, then you can then use benchmarks. But if I look at that and I can't really tell because, well, this had this set of traffic and this brand has a complete different set of traffic, I don't have enough like, like patterns built up overhead in my head where I can look at this and be like, oh, I know the traffic mix over here so that I know what to expect over here. And so I still find that, you know, a very specific sort of situation where I can't draw conclusions from one side to the next.
0: Yeah, it always annoys me a bit when people say, oh, what's the benchmark conversion rate for our industry? I'm like, I don't care. Yeah, I kind of get it, but it's like, I don't, why does it matter? Let's say, right, let's say your conversion rate is 2% and the benchmark is 4 Now all you know is that you're way below the benchmark. And all we've got, and what we're going to do is improve it, which is what we were going to do anyway. Because even if, you're, even if your conversion rate was 4%, we'd be looking at an increase.
1: Yeah. And that's why, you know, when I ran our business as a conversion rate optimization shop, it's those are the type of common questions that you will come up in that type of work. But it's usually the starting question that leads to different answers. And So for a brand owner, or for someone that doesn't understand analytics or metrics or benchmarks, they're supposed to ask the type of thing. It's slightly, slightly annoying, but it's, I don't really fault them, right? Because I understand why they ask. And so usually I just use that as a starting point to lead to, yes, you can look at it this way, but here's what really matters. And then it goes down to like economic CPAs and be like, see, see how you get ignored conversion rates. And as, as long as you have this, you still have, a, you still have a scalable business, try to direct the conversation there. So,
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm much nicer on the course, with <laughs> without said potential clients and clients, I don't, yeah, I, I've never said to anyone <laughs> that conversation stays here. <laughs> yeah. They can listen to it here, but yeah, I'd never say that. But yeah, essentially, it's well, another thing I've seen someone else talk about actually is well, like like we said, that conversion rate's a, a product of your traffic, right? So it's a volatile metric, it's affected by seasonality and stuff as well. So yeah, really, I tend not to look at overall conversion rate too much. We look at those micro conversions, essentially, and I'll be running tests that are improving that. Cool. In terms of channels, so how do you expand? What's, let's say you've you, you started out on Facebook. What are some of the mistakes brands make when trying to scale up? And how would you go about deciding what channel to move to and when? Sure. That's, it's a good question because a lot of
1: people struggle with this. And I think what I frustrates me a little bit when I hear, I shouldn't say frustrated because I get why they do it, but the best practices are typically things like, oh, you do a percentage of your ad spend here and a percentage of your ad spend on so paid social and a percentage of it here, like these clear cut sort of like percentages. But the actual situations that really matter is because I've, for example, I've seen brand scale on, on, on social and I've, I've seen brand scale on search. And so the first question to ask is going back to what I was said, saying earlier about product categories. So channel selection starts with product categories. And so if your product category, is such that you can compete well in a search environment. So your price points are not way too high or that if your product quality is superior to alternative options, you're going to do really well within a search environment. But the other prerequisite is there has to be enough search volume for that product category. And so if you're talking about things that people can visually identify and have the correct labels for, so one of the first one I can think about was is luggages. We did a luggage brand or suitcase brand, and they did really well on on search. Is because people know what the layman terms are. If you have novel products, right, then that's where it gets a little bit trickier, and that's when you need a social environment because you need to communicate visually, right? You know, you have YouTube Shorts and YouTube as well, but like, but generally speaking, if you have products that demonstrate well by showing how the product works, not telling people how the product works. And the categories aren't very clear so that you don't see a lot of search volumes for it. Generally, that means that it's better on the social environment if the price points are low enough that people are willing to shop in a short window, right? If it's a long product, like if it's a high price product with a long deliberation time, that makes it the hardest. And so channel selection, really, so yeah, channel selection starts with product category and thinking about which, which environments would you do best in competing for the clicks or competing for boredom versus yes. competing in a certain environment.
0: Yeah, so I guess going back to my example of boot Buddy, right? I think it's about £20, so $25, maybe a little bit more. So that's, that probably falls into that, that bracket of you could put that on social and you can probably get someone to go, do you know what, it does annoy me when my dog walks back into the house with muddy paws. I'm going to get that and clean his paws after the walk. Cool, done, ordered. Something like a sofa, if you're ordering a sofa – I feel like a lot of people have a type of sofa in mind, right? So you probably know whether you want a corner sofa, a sofa bed, or just like a whatever the other style is, one-sided. Yeah, so you probably can just search for that, right? So you're probably going to be a reasonable amount of search volume for that, which you can work on exploiting. And But then obviously, given that it's a £2,000 purchase, that is going to bring down the volume, the search volume, and therefore, at a certain point, you're going to say, "Well, now we do need to start pushing it and getting people thinking." Oh, do you know what? Maybe I will replace my safety. Yeah, you know this one's a bit old. Yeah, and that's a good example because again, it demonstrates
1: that the channel selection starts with the product category. Because if people don't search in that, it creates a lot of anxiety around. Oh, what if what happens if it got the wrong like like size or the dimensions or it doesn't fit or if it change my mind like just the pain and agony of like even going through returns like it really puts hesitations on that where if it's like a, a low barrier product they don't have that kind of consideration it's like oh i'll send it back whatever like it's not a big deal that changes the environment so channel selection and channel mix in terms of budget selections is where it starts with that and then within that question you asked about how do i know if i you know how do i scale how do i move from one thing to the next Generally speaking, is you pick the first channel by trying to find the highest margins and how much profitability that you have. And with ad channels, the more money that you deploy in a particular campaign or just a channel in general, you get diminishing returns. So the first, if you have an effective campaign, let's call it a three X campaign on a two X target. So you want to have you have a three X ROAS, and all you need to do was actually hit two X for break even sort of economics. Then that extra sort of revenue that you have is actually basically, I think of it as like a testing budget that you would set a certain amount aside to find the next campaign within the same channel. Or you start, the moment you cross enough money left over to test a new channel to test viably, that's when you expand. And so in most cases, it's nailing the first one first, getting it to high enough sort of profit margins, and then having the confidence that if you screw up the next channel in the beginning, it will hurt the overall ad budget because you have enough cushioning in the first channel to expand to the next. So channel expansion generally happens that way. And you do need to get to that point. But in most cases, if your brand is not doing a significant amount of revenues off one channel that really works, then it's hard to do that. Or... Some brands have an environment where they have an existing effective channel that works for them that basically helps drive and fund the first channel exploration. So it could be like they have a strong B2B sales environment, they have a wholesale environment, or they've nailed organic sort of like TikTok or something like that. Something that helps them get a set of consistency of sales that makes advertising less risky whether it's the first channel or the next. But it's about finding ways of expansion by de-risking with the first one.
0: Yeah, so... so Let's say you were running it three times, 3x ROAS, your target's two. You run at that for a little bit and you end up with, I don't know, $100,000. That if you took that out of that budget, it's probably not exactly how it works. Maybe I'm not explaining this right. But you took it out of Facebook, for example, that's now spare. If you lost that money, you would pull Facebook down to a 2x. So you could go and put that hundred grand into TikTok see what happens. If it doesn't work, then you're kind of still where you want it to be anyway. But it's enough money for you to viably test TikTok and understand whether that's a potential
1: channel. Yeah, you. you're directionally correct, right? Because it's not binary. You don't have to like start a channel or end a channel. And when you test channels, a lot of things can go wrong. Is it the right creative? Is it the right destination? Is it the right audience testing? There's a lot of little things that, that are considered, but you do need enough budget to test and set a new channel and you have to make strong educated guests in the beginning by either look at competing products with the category of how they approach it or just making sure that you have the right sort of angling and messaging and so there's nuances within that but broadly speaking channel expansion or even just campaign expansion so within the same channel but just testing different things so like you're, you're going PMax on shop on, 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 on google and then you move into like you know having a dedicated youtube campaign or a dedicated like you know like dynamic search campaign but within that it's finding your best performing ones and then using subsets of, of that budget and or that margin towards testing something next to it and then making sure that the overall like budget management across your channels is still net positive. And what we haven't talked about though and that's the other thing to consider is if the brands share this is yeah even if your ad campaigns are profitable is the business profitable because we're only talking about unit economics of the individual sale but if the underlying business can't support it there are fundamental there are other fundamental issues. But really, like that's a conversation about the brand revealing that because they may not. And if you don't, then you just work with the constraint that you have.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you probably want to... You should be at least asking the question as an agency, shouldn't you, to understand it. And you know, if they explain it and say we're happy to operate at loss for now um, while we scale, cool. If they're a bit flaky with the answers, maybe that's a bit, a bit of a red flag for it. It's not so much um, I am. Why? Because they have they sometimes have really good reasons why they don't reveal it. Sometimes, it's that my be... Oh, no, sorry, I mean, if they just don't want to reveal it, and if they just say, we don't want to discuss that, whatever, that might be fine. But I mean, if they're, you know, if it's kind of a, we haven't really got that like, calculated, you know, we're not, you know, if they're saying things that aren't, we're just not going to tell you that. You don't need to know that. But are. Trying to find ways of not telling you it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Maybe that's a
1: bit. At, at the end of the day, it's about demonstrating and understanding that the actual job is company profitability and not the Unicatomics being profitable, because it's a proxy for the health of the business, right? And so, again, you know, whatever reasons they don't review it is different things. And it could just be that they just don't want to send you to PL, but they're happy to tell you the percentage of net profits for a given month. And so sometimes, frankly, that's all I need, right? Or maybe you just don't have it, right? And so, there could be valid reasons. But the broader point is not confusing that, oh, unit economics is doing really well. Therefore, my campaigns are really well. Therefore, we're doing really well as a business. And then basically being blindsided that, oh, the company is actually not doing very well. Because the job of the agency and head of growth or whatever else that is in that position is to understand that you have to look at financials. You have to understand the, the operating structure of the company. And that's why I asked about if there are competing channels, not, sorry, not competing channels, adjacent channels that are working really well, that could fund paid ads and direct to, list, direct to list, because Shopify or just their, the web channel. is just one channel out of a mix of other sources of revenue. And yeah. so that gives me a better it's sense of the dynamics of the business.
0: I think what also happens with smaller businesses in particular, other costs go up, right? And if you're, not, if you're not re-evaluating these numbers on a fairly regular basis, you might get caught out. So I worked with a brand last year and their profits per order suddenly halved. I think it was about half. I think it dropped by about fifty percent before before we started working with them. And they didn't really explain it. You know, they raised concerns about it, but then wouldn't really share anything about, you know, why this might have happened. And, you know, my my guesses were that they'd hired someone and they'd rented an office. Right. So I was, you know, I'm pretty sure you've taken on some quite big expenses here. So it's just important to make sure those, any additional costs are actually being taken into account because it's really easy to add a few apps to your website, add some other tech. If you're not taking into account those costs, suddenly they could spiral into the, you know, thousands of dollars quite quickly. Yeah.
1: And so what's interesting about what you said there is that I've had situations, because I'm not an accountant by trade, I'm not a financial, you know, I'm not a CFO, right? But if, if I worked with somebody that, I have a friend that uh, runs a brand, he's a CEO of a brand, but he's an accounting background. And so who audit brands with me sometimes and we'll look at P&Ls together. And I asked and lean on his expertise because sometimes he'll look at P&Ls. And the same way that I do this for analytics, he knows that numbers lie right? So, if I look at analytics, I know it's directionally correct, but I never actually trust the actual figures unless I know it's coming from straight from the source, right? Like Google Analytics as an example, it's a secondary source. But similarly, p can have that same sort of like just data in general, but like there could be things that were overlooked. There are things that could be misunderstood and misinterpreted. And so whatever I do, whatever calculations that I'm doing for my targeting from a marketing perspective, I have to adjust for buffers because there's, you know, you're assuming the company knows how to, measure their businesses down to a T, T and people screw it up every now and then too right and so but there's also legitimate reasons why costs can go up or go down right so if you have better negotiating deals because you're driving a lot more volume your costs would go down but like we have seen this during the pandemic where our shipping costs were six times higher than what they normally would exactly so it's like it's a three thousand dollar container and now suddenly eighteen thousand dollars it's like that's going to impact your costs quite a bit and so Context matters. And also that's why even from a targeting perspective, we try to revisit that every three months, every quarter and say, hey, you know these targets that we've did a breakdown for calculating unit economics, are they still valid? And that changes not just for the product category across the brand, but I try to break that down on the hero skew versus the next adjacent skews. And if you get that on the on a per product basis, that helps you inform your strategy of like, okay, which one should we advertise next? Which product sets to we advertise next? And the, and the targets change per the way that you set up your cow structure, but those are important considerations to get your contribution margins.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned shipping. I spoke to a couple of people who both had examples on this. One, he sells dog ramps. He was on the podcast quite a while ago now. He sells big, quite big physical dog ramps, right? So there's only a certain amount he can get in a container and he's got no flexibility on what he can do with that. Right? So if his container costs go up five times. He get he, there's no way he can mitigate that. Whereas another brand, I can't remember what this was now. It must have been some sort of clothing brand or something, because they were telling me the amount of time and effort they put into how their products are shipped to them. So I think they redesigned their product to be able to make it flatter so that they could get like twice as many into a shipping container. Uh, but with no actual impact on the product itself as from a consumer point of view. So it's these little things you can do that, you know, if you can save yourself a massive amount of money, or rather if you can, you know, you're spending more money on shipping because you've got no choice in that, but you can double the amount of product you put through it. Yeah, you're putting yourself in
1: better place. So it's back to our uh, question about like, why would I look at metrics? What makes a brand appealing? It actually sometimes has less to do with the actual marketing metrics that we care about, KPIs and those type of things, because product category really speaks to that. Where are you to source your products? How convenient is it to scale? Is you know, There's a lot of non-marketing considerations in the marketing work.
0: Yeah. One final question. We haven't done a lot on this, but just in terms of expanding channels, let's say you're absolutely nailing on Facebook, do really well, RIA's not a problem. Would you scale into multiple channels at the same time? Or would you say, go to one, test it, start to scale it, and then open up another, like do it kind of methodically one by one? Or would you say, look, you know, yeah, we've got the money. Let's just, just go
1: for it. Yeah. It generally makes sense to test sequentially, but there are situations where people may want to expand in multiple channels all at once. If you raise a big round of funding, for example, you may have the pressure to grow quickly and so, you know, that may be prudent in that particular situation and environment. But short of that, generally speaking, if there's no time, if there's no external time pressure, it would make sense to sequentially so sort of move one at a time. But the other consideration is it all starts with what you know has already worked, right? And so we didn't dig that deep into like auditing an account, but auditing accounts are usually interesting because you get to see like, it's like seeing the cross section of a tree. You get to see all the history of all the decisions that were made and the skill sets of the previous teams. But those are usually your indicators for what channels to expand into next, right? And so if I'm doing well on Google search, then I know expanding into Bing search, right, is going to be a subset of my, as a subset of my budget, I know it's a relatively low risk to do that. On paid social, it's like, if I have ad creatives that I know people are responding well to, then moving from Instagram to TikTok, there are going to be some nuances and differences and there are different properties and attributes but I know it's relatively safe. So I would take winning creatives from this side and I can then say, oh, what about YouTube Shorts? Would that work really well? Then transitioning over there. Channel expansion is about making sure that you have a risk-adjusted consideration so that when you go from one thing to the next, you're you're more likely to find success within that. And then it goes back to like ad auction dynamics and you know targeting of the demographics of the different platforms, are they the right sets of people to move into? But generally, from the get-go, I wouldn't start by saying, hey, guys, let's just put spaghetti on the wall and just try to throw it all at once. Yeah. <laughs> and if we're asked to do that, super too
0: close, nice. but it's not the prudent thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. Cool. Awesome. Really good stuff. Just two really quick questions before we finish. If you could pick the brains of anyone in the e-commerce space, who would it be?
1: So... There's a lot of people that publish online, and so I th- I'll, I'll probably skip the ones that you know you could like listen to podcasts to or what have you. But one brand that I've been very impressed with, that we competed against actually, is a luggage brand a local luggage brand. So I'm in Vancouver. There's a local luggage brand named Mottos, and they sell these premium luggages. And their founder, his name, he goes by Victor Tam, and he uh, they bothered me to buying in-house. And when I was competing against her, because it was also doing a luggage brand, I saw a lot of ways that they innovated. And what's interesting about Victor is that he comes from a serial entrepreneur. He did forex trading, like maybe like, you know, in an early, like early to late, you know, 2000s, they had a fur- high-end furniture brand, and now he's going to Mono. So this is not his first rodeo, but it's interesting about him because he's a triple threat. He's good at storytelling and fundraising to build this current company. So a good CEO. He understands product design very well. So when you, go, when you show up and you actually look at the products and you look at Deconstructed, there's a lot of genuine innovations and innovative ideas that are sourced internally, not copied elsewhere. But it also reflects on their advertising models. And so you see ways that they approach advertising that, for example, I haven't necessarily seen before. And I was like, oh, that's interesting that we basically reverse engineer. So if I could, and he's not very public about some of the things that he's doing. And so in that sense, I think he's very interesting. And I have a lot of respect for him in how they approach advertising. And for everybody else that's already like highly visible and they, I think that's, you can pick the brain just listening to a podcast, but Victor is and their team at Monos, they're doing a lot of things right. And interestingly, maybe like a couple of weeks ago, I actually like DM'd him on Twitter and I was like. Hey, man, can I be a fly on the wall and like, you know, I'll discount our prices so that I can like join what you guys are doing and support you in any way that you can. And I know we have skill sets that that would genuinely be helpful and be a signing board or provide support. But he was correctly saying, well, no, we keep everything in house because we have all these ideas like source internally and really know how to approach this. And I was like, fully respect that. But triple threats. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool. And so, very finally, one final quick bit of advice. For any brands out there?
1: Yeah, I think the advice that I would give is the same advice I would give to myself, which is more general business advice, but it applies to meeting and working with agencies, which is very better, <laughs> But be good at getting advice, and so whenever you're hiring an agency, and I get why that there's a lot of hesitancy around meeting new ones because they always seem to want something from you, and there's always, always, and frankly, there's honestly a lot of really bad agencies out there. But when you hire a team, you want to hire people that are better at you in each specific sort of field. And marketing is such a—it's not the only important part of the department, but it's a very important piece. And so, if you're not good enough, you should get—you should run it so that you're—you have a general understanding of what to ask. But asking good questions to get at good at vetting the team and seeing if the advice that they're giving to you makes sense. For me, it could be hiring a lawyer. It could be hiring an accountant. There are a lot of fields that I don't fully understand. But the process of asking someone's opinion and then cycling through a second and a third opinion and seeing and comparing how the devices differ, that's generally a very useful and important thing to do. And it doesn't matter if it's a small brand or a large brand, people people mess up decision making quite a bit. And you need to be relying on consultants or experts to guide you. It's just that when you lead with the first agency and you seem to come from a place of distrust because of incentives, totally fine. But you need to compare that against asking multiple candidates and you need to be good at having someone that you can go to on a regular basis for any important sort of aspects of your business. And I try to follow that myself. If I need to get legal advice or accounting advice, I don't take the first one that comes back or even just business advice from other CEOs. I don't take the first advice. I take second and third, and then I can then compare compare and contrast, and then I can make stronger decisions. But it's especially important in marketing because if you're trying to scale a brand from the startup phase to a growing phase... Or if you're in the growth phase and you're well established and you're trying to expand, getting good advice from the people that are around you, it's like that advice never stops.
0: Yeah, I think it's really valid to get multiple opinions on things because it's very easy to get to have that, have one call and get really excited about what that agency or consultant or whoever pitches. And then you think, cool, this is great. I love it. But really just take a few more days, speak to a couple of other companies, see what they say and then kind of cross cross check it and say so, well actually now that seems a bit weird what he was saying so i think that's great advice if anyone wants to reach out and chat with you it's best doing that there's two places i'm a
1: worker on twitter so i'm at jtc chan so jtc chan on twitter so if you send me a email like a sorry a direct message i'll likely respond or just go to our website 2x.agency and you can book a call there or you can also email me john j-o-h-n at number 2xcd so 2xcd.com sorry yeah 2xcd that's our old domain so 2xcd.com maybe drop this in the show notes <laughs> but email any website or on twitter all right well thank you so much that was a lot of fun
0: it's really important to get the timing right when expanding into new channels i've seen it time and time again you know i've done it myself as well where brand has expanded into a big new marketing channel too early to put too little resource into it got bad results decided it's not a thing to continue with you know, for most brands, you can get to millions in revenue just on Facebook, right? So there's so much opportunity there alone. You don't need to spread your budgets. You don't need to spread your resource into other channels. But when you do, you've got to give it a proper go. Put some real money behind it and commit to the channel. If you give TikTok a try with a 10K budget and don't even create a specific creative for it, you're not going to have a good time. If you'd like to hear more from John, you can find him on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback, or guest requests, please send them over to dot com or DM me on LinkedIn. Next up I've got Arian Radman joining me. We're gonna be talking about creating magical moments with handwritten notes. But until then, keep those customers clicking.